Harry Potter of Podcasts with Ian Morrison, Gabrielle Perez, Emma Alexander, Benjamin Shaw, Josh Hayes and Matt Malenta. The Jodcast, September 2018 edition. Hello and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Emma and joining me in the studio are Ben and Josh. Hello. Hello. And by studio, I really mean studio because we've moved. Yes. It's so exciting. And we can hear my supervisor in the room next door. Yes. We have a window. We have a window. It's daylight. We have, we have like four, we have a door. I think that's the most we do. exciting part. Jake, our, the producer just left for it. We were contemplating recording the door just for this. <laughs> because <laughs> we have. Just we've got one like all the other studios. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, but we do have still. A table. A table? It's very solid. Yeah, it's not a trestle table, it's an no. actual table. Mm. Um, we've moved up in the world after 11, 12 years. <laughs> Eventually. We've got a mysterious cupboard as well. Yes. Um, nobody knows what's in it, and we can't unlock it because we don't have a key. It's genuine. It's in the IT crowd, could Richmond be in yeah, there, maybe? Yeah, pretty much. Well, it's a blue door, it's not red. <laughs> ah, okay. Uh, <laughs> But what, what do we have in the show this time, Josh? Oh, right, yes. Uh, <laughs> yes, um, we don't know what's in the cupboard, but we do know what's in the show. In the show this time, uh, I interview Emily Drabic-Maunder about forming habitable planets, and Ian Morrison and Gabby Perez take a look at what's happening in the September night sky. But before all of that, here's Matt Malenta with This Month News. This Month in the News. NASA is going back to all-American space with the August introduction of a new group of astronauts who will be the first to fly from the U.S. soil using U.S.-built spacecraft since STS-135 in July 2011, which was the final flight of the Space Shuttle Atlantis and the final mission of the entire program. Since then, NASA had to rely on the help of its Russian counterpart, Roscosmos, to ferry its astronauts from the International Space Station and back, on board the Soyuz spacecraft. For many years, this has been seen as the less than an ideal solution, with international and national pressures increasing even more in recent years, to finally bring the capability to launch US astronauts from the American soil. Initial plans involve launching an Orion spacecraft on top of the Ares-1 rocket, but they had to be revisited after the cancellation of the Constellation program in 2010. This meant that NASA was left with no replacement to the space shuttle, situation it's been in for more than seven years now. Since then, more power and resources have been given to private contractors, small and big alike, with Boeing and SpaceX arguably the biggest winners, in the race to build and launch the first manned orbital spacecraft since the Space Shuttle, with the CST-100 Starliner and Crew Dragon 2 capsules respectively. Nine astronauts have been chosen to participate in four launches in total, one test and one mission flights for each of the capsules. These crews are made of both experienced astronauts and complete rookies, The first Steinliner mission will have a crew of three, including Eric Bow, who piloted Space Shuttles Endeavour and Discovery during STS-126 and STS-133 missions respectively. He will be joined by another experienced pilot, Christopher Ferguson, who flew and piloted Space Shuttle on three separate occasions during STS-115, STS-126 and STS-135. Ferguson officially left NASA in 2011 and joined Boeing 
to become the first commercial astronaut. These two will be joined by Nicole Aunapuman, a Marine Corps test pilot who is scheduled to go to space for the first time during that mission. Sunita Williams, a veteran NASA astronaut who was a commander of the ISS Expedition 33 and is one of the most experienced spacewalkers from NASA, will be on board the Starliner during its second mission. She will share her duties with Josh Casada on his first trip up to space. SpaceX's Crew Dragon 2 maiden crew flight will have Robin Benken and Douglas Hurley behind the wheel. Both are experienced NASA astronauts with Benken flying to space twice during SDS-123 and SDS-130 and also participating in multiple spacewalks. Halley was a pilot during SDS-127 and SDS-135 missions. Second Dragon capsule launch will ferry Victor Glover, a Navy test pilot, an astronaut rookie and Michael Hopkins, who spent 166 days in space during the Expedition 3738 at the International Space Station. The exact launch dates are still unknown, as both capsules are still under construction and development, with the first uncrewed flights expected at the end of this year or at the beginning of the next one. But some sources close to NASA say that these launches may slip as far back as late 2020. Additionally, NASA requires additional booster certification to prove that they are safe for launching humans, which can move the ultimate launch of the first space-screwed mission an extra year or two into the future. This can be an extra challenge for SpaceX, with the company using a novel and slightly controversial load-and-go method of fueling their boosters minutes before the launch, meaning the crew would have to be already in the capsule while the fuel tanks are being filled with highly explosive mixture. Due to the obvious safety concerns, NASA requires the company to successfully complete this procedure at least five times using the full uncrewed configuration before the first manned flight is allowed. It's going to get a bit warm for the Parker Solar Probe launch aboard the Delta IV rocket in the middle of the night on 12th of August. If everything goes according to the plan, it will become the first spacecraft to fly through the solar corona, travelling at the distance as small as 6.2 million kilometres, less than tenth the largest distance between the Sun and Mercury, the planet closest to it in our solar system. The close proximity to our star means that this spacecraft will have to withstand temperatures exceeding thousands of degrees Celsius and will be protected by more than 10 centimetres thick shields made out of carbon composites. Contrary to the popular belief, sending payloads towards the sun is more difficult than trying to get away from it, and this is reflected in the duration and complexity of the operations that will finally put the probe inside the corona. It will take around seven years of Venus flybys providing a necessary gravitational assist. During that time, this spacecraft will complete 24 orbits around the Sun, with speeds exceeding 700,000 kilometers per hour as its closest approach, which will make it the fastest spacecraft ever made. The instruments on board the spacecraft covered a wide suite of measurements and it will allow scientists to measure the strength and shape of the sun's magnetic field, 
measure the velocity, density and temperature of electrons, protons and helium ions leaving the solar surface, and a camera will be used to image ejecta originating at the Sun. The hope is that this mission will allow us to better understand the environment inside the Sun's atmosphere and explain why it is hundreds of times hotter than its surface. The examination of matter ejected from the Sun will help us also to better understand the effects it has on the space weather and the implications for the Earth's weather and climate patterns. As well as the effects the energetic solar particles have on the electronics in space as well as on the surface of our planet. And finally, an update on the status of the little rover that could, Opportunity, which has been silent since 10th of June when it went into hibernation mode due to a massive dust storm, the situation we have already talked about during June Jotka's episode. At the end of July and beginning of August, the amount of dust in the Martian atmosphere decreased sufficiently for the JPL engineers to be hopeful that the rover would wake up and ping them. This is not the first dust storm that the rover had to endure, but is certainly one of the largest ones since it touched down on the surface of Mars more than 14 years ago. And it is also not getting younger with solar panels constantly covered by dust and deteriorating batteries. It is possible that this dust storm was one too many for opportunity, and it made it enter one of the fault modes with either the electronic power system, internal clock, or communication systems giving up. The scientists are however not losing hope just yet, as the rover is equipped with redundant systems which could help it to wake up and send signals back to Earth. Currently the efforts are concentrated on listening to the rover and all the signals coming from Mars across a large bandwidth. Engineers are also trying to talk to the rover multiple times per week, in the hope of pinging it at the right time and starting the waking up procedure. If all these efforts are in vain, NASA will continue to talk and listen to the rover on a regular basis for a few months, until at least January 2019, when they will become more sporadic and eventually cease if opportunity is considered in the permanent state of sleep. So I can't say dead, because it's too sad. Thanks for that, Matt. Now, the real Josh Hayes interviews Emily Drabek-Monda about forming habitable planets. Hello, I'm Josh, and I'm here with Emily Drabek-Monda from the University of Cardiff, who is going to tell us, hopefully, a bit about what she does. So, hello, Emily. Hi. Hi. Um, so, you're from Cardiff. You work in the formation of habitable planets, I believe. Is that uh, that is correct? Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's correct. Um, so, I do look at the formation of planets, um, and I'm specifically an observational astronomer. So, I use um, submillimeter and radio telescopes all around the world in order to to look at how planets form. Okay. So, let's start at the basics then. How how with the most general question, I suppose we could ask, how does a planet form? So a planet actually begins to form around a star when the star actually begins to form. So when the star is very, very young, it has this thick layer of dust and molecular gas in orbit around it. And over time, it's this disk of material that ends up forming into a planetary system. So not just planets, but also moons and asteroids and comets and everything we see in our own solar system 
So we think that a rocky planet begins to form by the tiniest of dust grains. So most people don't really think that dust is very interesting or important in space, but actually these tiny dust grains over time will accumulate, and so they stick together, and they'll form kind of larger rocks, kind of like pebble-sized or centimeter-sized particles. Sorry, what, when you say dust, what exactly are you talking about? I assume it's not like household dust. It's no, it's not like household dust, exactly. So this kind of dust is kind of like bits of carbon and bits of silicon. So they're just kind of almost like grains of sand, but in space that's made out of carbon and silicon and iron and things along those lines. Okay, so where do these dust grains come from? Because I thought they were created in the stars. So is there a particular type of star that is more likely to have these grains around it? No, so when any star begins to form, so it, it's just that this dust and gas is scattered throughout space. So the dust and molecular gas got there from early stars exploding, so supernovae, and that kind of scattered material all throughout our galaxy. And so now the stars that we see forming all form from this dust and molecular gas that's just scattered through space. Okay, so you gave a seminar here, actually, yesterday. Um, yes. So um, that was very, very interesting, actually. Um, oh, thank and you. One of the questions that I had and also came up at the time um, was, what sort of solar systems are we expecting to find? And how do we know that these are the ones that are typical or atypical? So, for instance, our solar system, we think is maybe typical, but... So our solar system actually seems to be atypical when we take a look at exoplanets throughout our galaxy. For example, the Kepler Space Telescope has been able to find over 3,500 exoplanets scattered throughout our galaxy in a variety of different solar systems. So there might be multiple exoplanets in the solar system, or there may only be one planet in orbit around the star. So in general, when we look at these other planetary systems, our planetary system seems relatively atypical just because we have eight planets in orbit around our sun. However, at this point in time, you know, there's still we still have a lot to learn and we're still searching for lots of the exoplanets that is in our galaxy. So there will be a lot of them that we've actually missed in the process. And that's just because it's very difficult to find an exoplanet. So, for example, we have to look at the motion of the star. So if an exoplanet is close enough to a star, it will actually cause the star to wobble or we need to be able to see the exoplanet transiting in front of the star so that the star's brightness will actually dip down when that planet blocks out the light from the star. So I do think that, that there's a lot of exoplanets that we still need to find kind of scattered throughout our galaxy in order to, to best look at if we are a typical sort of planetary system. So in terms of how you actually then go about studying, so we know how to find the existing planets, but how do we find planets that are not quite formed yet. And so you were talking about measuring the size of dust grains. How do you do that from so far away? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So dust will actually emit light. So when dust heats up in orbit around the star, it will actually glow and we can see the light that's emitted by dust at different wavelengths. So for example, when we want to look at dust grains that are centimeters in size, so pebble-sized dust grains that indicate that dust is sticking together and beginning to form rocky planets, then what we do is look in radio wavelengths. So we use different radio telescopes, and so exactly like E. Merlin, um, so here in the UK, and, and Jodrell Bank Observatory, for Shout example. Shout out, woo. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so essentially, these dust grains only emit light at wavelengths that's equivalent to its circumference. So, for example, when we're looking at a one centimeter dust grain, 
we need to look at wavelengths of light that is around five to six centimeters in wavelength. So Mm -hmm. those are the sorts of radio wavelengths that we're looking at. Why is there some physical process that means that it's directly related to the circumference? Or? It, it's just not very efficient at emitting a smaller wavelengths than, than around its own size. Oh, okay. But it's its circumference as opposed to its diameter. Yeah, yeah. So it's proportional to its circumference, yeah. Oh, okay. Interesting facts. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I study Jupiter-sized planets post-formation. And one thing that I'm... So I'm, I'm still quite new to the field, and one thing that I'm kind of interested in is... Is there any change in, is there a difference in formation between gas and ice giants and rocky terrestrial planets? Is that a thing that is noticeably different? Do you see different formation mechanisms going on in the same creation disk, say? Yes, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, for example, rocky planets will form from the accumulation of dust grains. Gas giant planets will form from some sort of accretion mechanism and primarily out of gas as well. So you wouldn't necessarily expect a, a gas giant planet to form in the same way as a as a rocky exoplanet. Yeah. So it, it's is that... Can you see the formation of gas giants within these same, using the same techniques, or do you have to use some other different form of? So you wouldn't necessarily want to look for dust in in the case of gas giant exoplanets. So, for example, Alma's done a lot of work with looking at gas in disks, as well as doing a lot of work um, looking at dust as well, um, just at much smaller wavelengths. But one of the things that Alma came out with, they actually found a disk with what looks like a protoplanet in the process of forming. And the reason why they think a protoplanet is forming is that there seems to be some sort of accretion stream onto that protoplanet or onto something in the disk that we can't really see. So in molecular gas, they, you can see this kind of stream-like feature. And, you know, at the very center is presumably a protoplanet that's just stealing some of the gas from the disk away from the star. Okay, so is this the famous image of from Alma of sort of like a, well, it's false colour, I know, but like the red sort of concentric rings almost around? No, so not quite. So the concentric rings show, so there's kind of these dark ring features mm. in, in that particular disc. So I think it's HL Tau. And so that's showing that planets may actually be carving out space in the disc in both dust and gas. So there likely are planets in the process of forming. It's just carving out that material as it orbits the star. But this particular image, I can't think of the name, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't remember the name of, of the, of the um, star. But So it's showing these accretion streams, just a, a sort of stream in the disk itself, kind of in a region that doesn't seem to have any other material other than the stream kind of penetrating the, the disk cavity. And then presumably there's a protoplanet in the, in the center. Yeah. Excellent. That sounds really interesting, actually. There's every now and again, there's a, there's a sort of like a topic that I go, oh, maybe I should just jump ship and do that. This is one of those talks that I, your talk yesterday was like, I was just kind of watching it going, hmm, I can see the point of radio astronomy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, radio but, astronomy is very important for planet formation. <laughs> um, so if you're looking at, do you ever find yourself looking at sort of migration methods and trying to work out exactly how it is that the structure within a solar system actually forms itself because obviously we have kind of like a sort of weirdly regimented terrestrial gas giant ice giant type situation 
Yeah. Have you studied or are you aware of any research that's going on in that area? So a lot of the research going on in the area will involve computer modeling, just because it is incredibly difficult to do that kind of study with observations, just because we can't look at these systems for millions of years, you know, to see where the exoplanets formed and how it's moved over time. However, one thing that Pebbles is doing, which is a survey with eMerlin, so the Planet Earth Building Blocks, a legacy eMerlin survey, excellent acronym. <laughs> so one of the things the survey is doing is looking at nearby disks and looking for the pebbles in these particular disks. And the idea is that uh, we should be able to resolve pebbles that are forming at an equivalent of an Earth-Mars orbit from pebbles that are forming at a Jupiter orbit from pebbles that are forming at a Saturn orbit. And so the idea just in these very young planetary systems. So the idea is that we want to see kind of where the pebbles are forming and then we can try to distinguish between different kind of formation mechanisms and even kind of look into if pebbles are forming further out and thus if planets are forming further out away from the star, then perhaps it is likely that they are spiraling in towards the star at a later time and perhaps that's how the rocky planets like Mercury, Venus, Earth and Mars actually ended up forming. So that's something that we're looking into, but it's a very difficult thing to do, really. Is it possible to trace the the history of a particular planet? So if you're looking at, say, a hot Jupiter-type system, is it possible to just take that Jupiter and go backwards in its time, or are we having to look at different systems at different times and assume that we can just connect them? I think that's a really good question. So kind of looking at the abundances of different molecules, you could theoretically test if, you know, if it's unlikely that a hot Jupiter, for example, would have formed very close in to its star in the first place, or if it would have formed out further and then spiraled in. So, yeah, it's something that I think should be able to be done, but I'm not entirely sure kind of how to, you know, to go about really doing that. Yeah. Fair enough. Have you got any, um, what are you expecting to find within the, um, how these structures form? Have you got a preferred hypothesis? I do think, so just from uh, what we've gotten so far with Pebbles, so we, we only have the commissioning data so far of a source called Digital A. And um, so this is a very young star, so what I would call a protostar with a disk. And we've actually already been able to find Pebbles in orbit around this star. And specifically, quite a lot of pebbles at about all the way out to a Saturn orbit, so a Saturn equivalent orbit. So I do think that it seems to be that the planet formation mechanism, at least for rocky planets, seems to be this accumulation of dust grains. And kind of what I'm hoping to find out from this project is I'm hoping to see that all of the stars that we image do have a nominal amount of pebbles that are forming. And I think what would be really exciting is that if we were able to see pebbles forming at kind of an Earth and Mars orbit, and so that's kind of like being able to to see an equivalent of an Earth or Mars forming in orbit around another star. So perhaps that could be what our own solar system looked like at one point in time, just billions of years ago, okay. um, which is really exciting. So Yeah, when you say an Earth or Mars equivalent or a Jupiter equivalent, yeah. is that, are you talking actual physical distances or are you talking relative to the size of the star? Or No, I'm talking about physical distances. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the, these are nearby. Well, I say nearby. 
objects. Um, so they're anywhere from 120 to 230 parsecs away. So yeah, I'm I'm just saying it in terms of relative distance. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so um, you've mentioned the Pebble survey. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Any big upcoming events or things we should be watching out for? Yeah, so the Pebble survey, like I said before, we do have commissioning data. And so we're about to come out with that paper probably early next year, I would say. And then the full survey is underway. So we were awarded over 400 hours of eMerlin time, which is really exciting. And so that full survey should be underway either at the end of this year or early next year. So definitely stay tuned and and we'll see kind of if any other stars are in the process of forming planets. Okay, Emily, thank you very much for your time. Um, Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for that, Josh. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other bits we can't fit in anywhere else. The odds and ends. So, Ben, would you like to kick us off on the odds and ends? Yeah, so I wanted to talk about something that um, happened at Joddle Bank um, in the last few weeks, just to kind of highlight the the fact that although we have these powerful radio telescopes, sometimes the way we use them can make us miss things that we otherwise may, wouldn't miss if we were being more careful. Um, and we heard uh, a while ago on the Jodcast about pulsar glitches, um, so... Russell Russell. Russell Russell. Um, so the Pulsar J0631 plus 1036 recently glitched, um, not just once but twice within two weeks. Um, now that's unheard of in glitch astrophysics. Uh, this particular Pulsar, it's the first time it's glitched in about seven years, um, and then it does two glitches in two weeks, which is just odd. Um, the first one, uh, which was on the 12th of August, had a an amplitude or a magnitude or a size of 27 parts per billion. So the rotation rate of the pulsar changed by 27 parts in a billion, um, which is actually, it's, it's fairly large. We're, we're sensitive to glitches that are much smaller than that. And then the second one, which happened on the 22nd of August, was nine, uh, changed by 96 parts per billion. Now, the interesting thing about this is, currently the Lovell telescope is broken. Uh, well, it's not broken. It's it, it, well, it isn't working, but it's. <laughs> Very diplomatic there, Ben. I feel like we're in a Monty Python so, sketch. <laughs> the Lovell Telescope is having some significant maintenance work done on it, and so it's been off for several months. We're going to get it back in October, um, and so in the meantime, we've been doing most of our routine pulsar timing with a Mach two telescope, um, and because. The Mach 2 telescope is part of E. Merlin and it does other science. Um, the How often we observe any given pulsar has had to be quite carefully configured. So normally with a Lovell we have about 900 pulsars and we time them all once roughly every two weeks. With a Mach 2 we're not able to time that many because we have to share this telescope. Um, and so we're only timing about 60 pulsars. But when we have the Mach 2 for several days a week we're able to get data points every single day so we're able to look at the pulsar pulsars and how they rotate once a day and so because we've got these daily observations we were able to see that this pulsar glitched twice very close together and when we did some calculations we realized that had we just had our normal nominal Lovell observing program going on we would have recorded these events as one single large glitch so the fact that Lovell has been out of action for so long has actually helped us find this double glitch which is effectively the first of its kind. Now there's been um, precedent in some sense in the past where 
a pulsar has glitched and then glitched again shortly afterwards, but the second glitch was much smaller. And in the context of the Starquake model of pulsar glitches, where you have these sort of plates forming on the surface and they suddenly jolt into place, um, that could be um, interpreted as an aftershock, very much like the earthquakes we get here on Earth. But this, uh, the second of the two glitches, was about three times bigger than the first. And so I've no idea in, in the context of superfluid dynamics how to actually interpret that. So it's a really interesting event and one we wouldn't have seen in this way if we'd only had Lovell and our routine timing. So what this means is how many of the glitches we've recorded with Lovell were actually two glitches, but we didn't have the observing cadence to be able to resolve the two glitches separately. So it's an interesting question and one which we should go back into the data and find out. I was going to ask, is there a way, even if you haven't resolved it in the Lovell data two glitches, is there, are there any telltale signs that there might be something there that you haven't resolved? Or is it just completely... It wide? depends on the glitch itself. If both glitches are sufficiently large, then you may see recovery from one or both of them. And the recovery, um, so the recovery is the pulsar glitches, it suddenly speeds up its rotation rate and then over several hours, days, weeks or months, it slowly goes back to its pre-glitch rotation rate. So depending on how the recovery looks, it's possible that we might be able to infer that there was another glitch, but it would be very difficult to actually measure it and confirm it. Uh, with smaller glitches, we generally don't see any recovery at all. Um, and so most of the glitches are very small. In general, our statistics are biased towards single glitch events rather than double glitch events. So it's unlikely that this is an isolated thing. It's probably happened in other pulsars. But it's interesting that because we had one out of action telescope, and we had to resort to a, a smaller telescope. We were able to actually see this just because of the, the scheduling. So by breaking a telescope, we actually saw more. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. We might have been able to get a, a little bit more information had we had a telescope as sensitive as Lovell. The problem with Mach 2 is it's smaller. And so when we say this pulse arrived at this time, the uncertainty on that time is larger with the Mach 2 than it would be with the Lovell. And so that reduces the amount of information you can get on things like the glitch size and the recovery. Um, so in terms of the cadence, it provided, you know, the, the, how often we observed, Mach 2 provided the biggest advantage in this case. So for context, so I don't really know very much about glitches. How common are they for, like, a... if Because like, you, you say you had to reduce the number of pulsars you were looking at. Yeah. What... What were the chances that you actually saw a glitch in any of those of that reduced sample? So the pulsars that we're observing with the map two are carefully selected as the ones that are that it would be the most detrimental to us to have months and months of absent data. And so some of those are frequently glitching pulsars, and it tends to be, uh, to answer your first question, the younger pulsars that tend to glitch more. Um, it's not entirely clear why that is. It's possible that equilibrium between the crust and the inner superfluid is is reached uh, more effectively in older pulsars. Um, but yeah, the, the pulsars we're observing with Mach 2 are, are, have high magnetic fields, um, so there may well be X-ray bursts that we can follow up with other telescopes. Some of them have rotational parameters that we simply can't constrain, so they, they show this thing called timing noise. Others are frequent glitches. Other than, other, uh, others are millisecond pulsars that we want to continuously monitor for the purposes of our gravitational wave experiments. So those 60 were sort of not just not just a random 60 from the collection, but <coughs> they were carefully considered as the ones that would have the most scientific merit and the biggest detriment did we not observe them for six or seven months. So yeah, um, 
as I said, quite how we interpret these two glitches, I haven't yet worked out, but um, possibly we'll we'll hear more about that in the future. Sweet. Broken telescopes can still give good scientific results. Although we wouldn't recommend breaking an already working telescope just a chance that you might yeah, get when a result comes from back it. on, please don't come to Joddle Bank and kick it. That, yeah, that would I mean, be bad. <laughs> we might be out of battleship turrets now to fix it with. <laughs> yeah, I think the last battleship turret shop closed down a long time ago. Yeah. So. Go and, uh, what, is it Belfast that's on the, um, on the terms? HMS Belfast, rather. And just Belfast. Yeah, the Thames goes through Belfast. Belfast Belfast moves. Yeah. (laughs) Cool. Thanks for that, Ben. I don't know what I'm talking about anymore. Just wait on the coast for some (laughs) ships we can strip down. Moving on. Um, so what has got my interest recently um, is that. Well, did you guys hear about the leak on the International Space Station? I heard about it, but only that it happened. I, I heard about it from you ten minutes before we started recording this. Brilliant! So I can bring you up to speed and hopefully bring the listeners up to speed as well. So uh, recently NASA announced that the International Space Station was slowly leaking air out of a two millimeter wide hole. Um, so this was first noticed by flight controllers as a tiny pressure leak. Um, but it wasn't deemed important enough to wake up the crew of six uh, who are from NASA, ESA and Roscosmos, the Russian space agency. I mean, if, if I was on the ISS and there was a pressure uh, fluctuation that seemingly was caused by a leak, I think I'd want to be woken up to be told about it. Well, I don't know. But, if, there, if there was nothing I could do about it. Well, appara- then, apparently they, they, they assessed it and there was no danger to the, the crew at all. Then I, yeah, then, I, then ignorance is bliss, right? Maybe. I don't, I don't know. Anyway. I mean, I'm already hurtling around Earth at crazy speeds in a tin can. I don't need more more things to worry me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, when, when the astronauts eventually woke up, um, they did a module-by-module hunt of the source of the leak, and they eventually located it on the Russian side of the station, uh, specifically the Russian Soyuz MS-09 spacecraft, uh, which brought three of the crew to the station in June. And uh, what was the response to the whole? Um, one of the astronauts, uh, specifically ESA astronaut Alexander Gerst, initially just plugged it with his thumb. They found a hole out in space, <laughs> and he put his thumb in it. Is he still there? Is he still there? <laughs> well, no, no, no. When he did that, did another hole open somewhere else that he had to plug? <laughs> and he's, he's now just sort of stood there with like his nose in the wall, and yeah, no, all, all ISS science has been uh, stopped now because uh, all six of the crew are just having to use all of their limbs to to plug holes in the side of the. Uh... You just get some clarinet players in. <laughs> Uh, now, luckily uh, for the for the astronaut, um, he, his thumb is not still covering the hole. Um, they initially covered it with some tape, essentially, uh, not just kind of your average sticky tape. It's something called Captain tape, which uh, it's is duct it? tape. Uh, it, it's, it's a little it's, bit more it's, robust it's than duct tape. tape. They, they gaffer taped a hole on the on the spaceship. Yeah, yeah but we'll <laughs> go with that. Um, but they, they they have uh, now put in a more robust seal of uh, of epoxy um, into this hole. Um, but yeah, just the fact that he plugged it with his thumb is is what's getting me. He's like, oh, there's a hole in the side of my spacecraft. You know what? Let's just plug it with my thumb. So was it a hole to the outside? Of the yes, yeah, yeah. Was from how big? How old was the outside? Uh, so two two millimeters. Two millimeters. It was. Um, 
But it, it does get more interesting from here because initially they thought that the ISS has been, had been struck by like a piece of space junk, which is it's happened before, um, yeah. and it, it's something that the ISS is kind of shielded against, and it's something that they are well prepared for. You know, mm-hmm. the event of a of a strike because um, it, it doesn't take too much actually to. To, to dent or even to put a hole in the ISS. Um, so back in 2016, uh, a seven millimeter dent in a window appeared, and it was thought to be caused by something no more than a thousandth, well, a few thousandths of a millimeter across. Yeah. So really tiny objects going at kind of orbital speeds can can really do some serious damage to the ISS. Periodically, I think they have to they have to switch the orbit they're in to avoid some incoming like missile. Yeah. Not missile, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, because the amount of junk that is now in space—I mean, yeah. pretty much yeah. everything we put up into space—we're just adding to this field of junk around the Earth, mm. and uh, you know, it, it's reasonably spread out. It's, it's not like it's you know just this massive blanket around the Earth of junk. Um, but you it, can it still does see the stars. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Are other stars just junk? Oh, Sidereal jokes. <laughs> well, no, no, some of them are right. Oh, that, yeah. That's a complete like that's that's a complete tangent. But please stop putting shiny things in space as well. Yeah, ours. it's it's not good for astronomers. No. Please stop it. Um, but tangent yes, over. tangent tangent over. Um, so NASA actually tweeted out some photos of this hole, and people like that, that. This doesn't look like a strike. This looks like a drill hole, and. Um, the the Russian space agency has actually come out with and, and they've thought that potentially and they're still investigating this as as we're recording this that it could potentially be a deliberate drill hole in the side and there there are multiple ways that this might have occurred again this is all speculation at this point this is partly why I wanted to bring this up because I've no we've no idea what this is at this point in space at this point yeah it's, it's a picture it's it's great so there, there are so there, there's a few theories um, behind how this hole could have gotten there so um, it could have been a deliberate sabotage attempt you know someone's drilled the hole um, and they plugged it with something that means that it's not noticed before it's launched but then a soon as the Soyuz is up in space then it's exposed to the harsher conditions and that's that's when this temporary seal has gone away or potentially someone's made a mistake when they've been making it they've drilled a hole where they shouldn't have they've panicked and they've just patched it up oh, which totally well sh- maybe well, it's, it's just an Ikea book right <laughs> I mean another another I've one I've done that with furniture <laughs> I think I think constructing the ISS is a little bit different to constructing IKEA furniture. I'm sure they might have like an electric drill rather yeah. than like a hand one. But... To be honest, I've put together <laughs> I've put together IKEA furniture, and to be honest, I think some p- parts of putting the ISS together is probably easier than. Emma, putting... I've sat on chairs you've put together. I'm... <laughs> <laughs> um. Anyway, yeah, so we, we don't know if that was the cause, or wow. even one of the suggestions is that there is a homesick cosmonaut on the ISS that has done this as a deliberate, potentially we need to send people home early, because that is one of the considerations, right, that they've, they have yeah. lost some of the air from the ISS, and, they, they, and at some point they were thinking that they might have to send some of the crew home early. I think this is quite a hard, um, well, it's quite a far-fetched theory, though. Um, they have noted that it, the, the spot in which the hole is is in a quite hard-to-reach spot. So, in conclusion, we don't quite know where this hole has come from. Um, it was originally plugged by an astronaut's thumb, and now is hopefully all fixed, and the and the ISS uh, astronauts are all perfectly safe. Um, but uh, yes, maybe something to look out for as they kind of continue on with the investigations and work out where exactly this hole has come from. 
<laughs> look on your face, I just think how they found it. I mean, did you just go around listening for a hiss? I, I think they just went from um, from module to module, and I think they can seal them all off individually. And they just and blow bubbles <laughs> and then see where the bubbles go. Yeah. <laughs> now that is a sight I would like to see. Actually, would bubbles work in space? Like you wouldn't you wouldn't need soap, right? You just release water. And then you get to hoover it up afterwards as you float about. The thing is, I'm not, I'm not sure they would, would want Allah to just Holmes be. Re- Simpson. I'm not sure they would just be wanting to release stuff willy nilly and letting it float about. I mean, I know they do kind of cool tricks and stuff, and mm. they can do all sorts up there. But maybe just letting some water loose to find its way to a hole isn't yeah. the best idea. I don't know. I'm not an it's, astronaut. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's why people spent so much money. Like the Americans originally spent so much money on those. Like there's there's the the old joke of. Americans went to space and they spent like a billion dollars on developing a, a pen that could write upside down underwater in zero gravity. And the Russians used a pencil. Um, but you can't use pencils because they throw graphite everywhere and it gets into everything. And bad things happen when graphite gets into electrics. Mm-hmm. Maybe the hole in the ISS was, was caused by just a stray pencil in space. Just, just like the, 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 the nib. Yes. Like the, 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 small, the smallest sharpened down stub they could possibly find yes. that was just flying around. Yes. What a strange... Yeah, so I hope so. I mean, yes, so um, fingers crossed everything will be okay with the ISS. It seems like they've got everything under control. Um, if you'd like to see the ISS in the night sky... Uh, which can be in your front garden tomorrow morning. <laughs> <laughs> or you can look out for it because it will be visible from the UK um, this month in September. Um, you can ha- have a look on NASA's spot the station um, and I'm sure um, Ian Morrison might be talking a bit about that in uh, the night sky as well. Um, but before we get to that, we do have one more odd and end from yeah, Josh. I'm so here um, as well. Yes, I will um, hand over to Josh <laughs> for his odd and end. So um, yeah, um, talking about like things wandering through the sky, um, I've got a question for you two. Um, number planet from the sun, which is Mars? That question was incredibly badly phrased. What, <laughs> how many planets from the sun is Mars? Four. Four. Correct, but maybe not always correct. Um, so this is a new theory as to where uh, the water on Mars has come from. Um, so in a nutshell, uh, the theory is that, um, and I quote Cole Brown, who is the um, lead researcher on this, um, along with Darren Williams, uh, Mars starts on top of Venus, then dances outwards towards Earth. So it's the, the theory is basically that Mars and Venus, because they're kind of similar sized-ish, um, they form together, and then gravitational interactions happen, and Mars floats out. But if Mars starts where Venus is, um, over the course of about, I think it's about 100 million years, is long enough for liquid water to form on the surface, make river valleys and things, it, for it to have an atmosphere, and then it floats away, and that atmosphere dissipates along with water. Um, that is the theory in a nutshell. Um, the interesting part is that they've modelled this, because obviously we don't, as as astronomers, we don't just go, maybe that happened, and then go to the pub. But sometimes people have been known to do that. Um, but they, these, um, they, they've actually modelled this, and they found that the, this is unlikely, but but not Impossible. It's actually about ten, over ten percent of the simulations they ran um, were like 
worked for this. Um, but originally, um, I quite I quite like this because it kind of shows how shows how much effort you have to put into simulating this sort of thing. Because gravity and the like interactions of, of different bodies is, is really complicated. It's subject to chaos theory. And um, originally, they um, they have this simulation where they start Mars and Venus off together, and then just let Mars and the whole system evolve and see where Mars ends up. They saw quite often, though, that Mars came really, really close to Earth, so within 40 Earth radii, which is closer than the Moon. Um, so actually, what you what they had forgotten in the original, or not included originally, was the Moon, um, which is. Surprise, which is actually quite big. Um, it, it has a significant effect at this point. Um, so they, they went back, started again, um, and then they've described it as basically, it's kind of like if you shot a Mars cannon at the Earth-Moon system, and they've just fired Mars <laughs> at the Earth and the Moon to see what, ha- what goes on. Um, and they, found, they find that basically there are, there are simulations that have the Moon and the Earth, not Moon and the Earth, the, the one that's not the Moon, Mars, Mars and the Earth. Um, they begin with M. Same thing. Uh, <laughs> Mars and the Earth colliding, um, which is good for us, I guess, um, because the, we don't think they have. Uh, but um, this actual mechanism is of interest to not just where has Mars come from, but it's it's thrown up an extra sort of nugget of um, like the leading moon the moon formation theory is that originally. There was some collision between Earth and a Mars-sized object um, that basically spat out a load of rock, and this all congealed, coalesced—that's the word—coalesced um, into the Moon. And if this theory actually holds, and you can have Mars-sized objects migrating, this gives us a reason for where it's come from. It means that we don't have to have Earth and Mars object that became the moon on the same orbital path pretty much like it can just be sort of fired out alternatively um, this could be nonsense or not very not very realistic rather um, because I think about 50% of the time they did this um, they just fire Mars out completely out of the system um, and Mars goes forever and bye bye and but we have Mars so we know that we, that we, have, we have Mars so we know it didn't happen And but that said it's like a 10% chance that it like in, in all of their simulations, 10% of them had Mars finishing where it is today. We could just be in one of those 10%, and that's not an actual mm-hmm. unreasonable number to... Yeah, I suppose the, the, the problem we have in astronomy is that we only have one universe, we only have one solar system, we only have one example of how things turned out. So while in a simulation you can run it a hundred, a thousand times, and you can get percentages of what, what's the likelihood of all these things to, uh, that what's the likelihood that all these things have happened? We're just seeing things as they are now. Mm. What's the? It's there's there's a word there's a name for that. The which kind of related to the anthropic principle. That's the one. Yes, thank you. Yeah, that, it's the anthropic principle. There we go. That was my. That was entirely me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, that, I I I just thought that was cool. Um, that's a that's a cool little bit of um, simulation, but also a, a really nice theory. I think um, that Mars has not always been where it is today, and didn't form in the way that we sort of might immediately think of just this disk and then things 
coalesce and just Mars is there now. Mm. It formed earlier on and planets migrate and we know planets do migrate. So it it holds water. Haha. <laughs> that was completely that was, unintentional. That was terrible. That was completely unintentional, but I stand by it. Anyway, mm. on that note, I'm just gonna move on from my terrible puns. Um, sh- uh, shall we see if Ian Morrison has any um, wandering planets that we can spot and the ISS among other things here's Ian Morrison with the night sky north the night sky for September 2018 well you don't have to stay up quite so late now do you to actually see the heavens and after sunset a bright star Arcturus in Bootes will be setting on the western horizon but just a little bit to the west of south, high up, you'll see what is called the Summer Triangle. The three stars, Altair in Aquila, Vega in Lara, and Deneb in Cygnus, make it up. There's some nice things to see in this area, something called Brocky's Cluster, or the Coat Hanger, and the Double Double in Lara. And on the Night Sky page, just put in Night Sky, Jodrell into a search engine, I've given details how to find them. Over and somewhat down towards the horizon, we have the upside-down winged horse of Pegasus. And this gives you a starting point to find the nearest giant galaxy to us, M31 Andromeda. You start at the top left-hand star of the square of Pegasus, which actually is Alpha Andromedae, called Alpha Rats. Move across one bright star to the left, round a little bit and up again to the next bright star, then turn through right angles. Follow one star and the same distance again. You should see, with binoculars, a fuzzy glow. And that's the Andromeda galaxy. The photons that are falling on your retina left there some two and a half million years ago. It's quite exciting, isn't it? Above Pegasus and along the line of the Milky Way, you'll see the constellation of Cassiopeia, a W shape. And towards the horizon from there, you'll see the constellation of Perseus. And with binoculars, between the two, you might make out a little fuzzy glow, which are the two clusters that make up the double cluster in Perseus. So quite a lot to see. I do hope you have some dark skies in which under which to see it. I've just got back from Sark, which is one of the darkest places in the United Kingdom, and it was amazing what we could see with our unaided eyes. Someday, perhaps you might go there. So let's have a look at the planets. Well, Jupiter now is obviously past its best. It can be seen in the west soon after sunset at the start of the month. It shines at magnitude minus 1.9, falling to minus 1.8 during the month. It has a disk some 35, falling to 33 arc seconds across. So you should be able to see its equatorial bands, sometimes the great red spot, and up to four of its Galilean moons. Sadly, moving slowly eastwards in Libra during the month, Jupiter is heading towards the southern part of the ecliptic, and really will only have an elevation of about 10 degrees after sunset. Atmospheric dispersion will thus hinder our view, and it might be worth considering purchasing an atmospheric dispersion corrector to counteract its effects. Now Saturn is also visible in the south, 
has an elevation of about 14 degrees after sunset at the beginning of September. Its disk now has an angular size of 17.5 arc seconds, falling to 16.5 during the month. At the same time, its brightness reduces from plus 0.4 to plus 0.5 magnitudes. The rings were at their widest some months ago now, but are still at about 25 degrees to the line of sight, well open, and spanning about two and a half times the size of Saturn's globe. Lying in Sagittarius, Saturn halts its retrograde motion on the 6th of the month, within a few degrees of M8, the Lagoon Nebula, and M20, the Triffid Nebula. Again, sadly, atmospheric dispersion will greatly hinder our view. Now, Mercury... Actually, it can be seen low in the east-northeast some 30 to 45 minutes before sunrise during the first week of September. And on the 5th and 6th, Mercury, shining at magnitude minus 1, is just over 1 degree from Regulus in Leo, which will be at magnitude plus 1. Around the 11th of the month, Mercury disappears into the sun's glare as it moves towards superior conjunction, that's behind the sun, on the 20th of the month. Well, Mars has been a very prominent object in the South the last few weeks. It ceased its retrograde motion westwards in Capricornus and just about got to Sagittarius, actually, at the very beginning of the month. It made its closest approach to Earth since 2003 at the end of July. So after sunset, Mars can be seen just east of South, shining at magnitude minus 2.1, falling to minus 1.3 by month's end. Its angular size at the start of September is still 21 arc seconds, that's pretty good, but it falls to about 16 arc seconds by the start of October. With a small telescope, it should be possible to spot details such as Certis Major on its salmon pink surface. Again, towards the lower part of the ecliptic, it will only reach an elevation of about 14 degrees when due south. Well, Venus was at greatest elongation east on the 17th of August, but is now only seen low in the west after sunset, setting at about 80, reducing to 45 minutes after the sun. During September, it brightens from magnitude minus 4.6 to a pretty dazzling minus 4.8 magnitudes, making it easier to spot in the sun's glare. Binoculars might well be needed to spot it towards the latter part of the month, but please do not use them until after the sun has set. Its angular size increases from 29 to 46 arc seconds, but at the same time the percentage illuminated, it's called its phase, narrows from 40% to just 17%, so it's a very thin crescent. So finally, what about the highlights? Well, I've mentioned Mars earlier. Mars came to its closest opposition to Earth since 2003 on the 27th of July. But sadly, two things have conspired to limit our views. From the UK, its maximum elevation when on the meridian was only 12 degrees when observed from a latitude of plus 52 degrees. Thus, the atmosphere has hindered our view. The second problem has been that, as sometimes happens, Mars has suffered a major dust storm, which at the end of July was making it very difficult to observe any features on its surface. 
These can happen every six to eight years and can last for several months. The small-scale dust storm began on May the 30th and by the 20th of June had engulfed the whole planet. Happily, the dust storm has now seemed to subside and so details on the surface, such as Sirtis Major and the Hellas Basin, will be visible in small telescopes. Well, again, Saturn is still a highlight. It reached opposition at the end of June, so it's now low, elevation about 14 degrees in the south as darkness falls, lying above the teapot of Sagittarius. Held steady, binoculars should enable you to see Saturn's brightest moon, Titan, at magnitude 8.2. A small telescope will show the rings with a magnification of times 25 or more, and one of 6 to 8 inches aperture with a magnification of, say, times 200, coupled to a night of good seeing, when the atmosphere was calm, will show Saturn and its beautiful ring system in its full glory. But again, due to its low elevation, even when south, it's not going to look quite as exciting as it sometimes does. So, I mentioned three things that are visible high in the sky after sunset in September. The details are given on the night sky page. Just search night sky jodrell. First of all, there's a lovely globular cluster M13 in Hercules, and the double-double star system, Epstein Lyrae, in Lyra. Um, with binoculars, you'll see two stars, a double, but with a small telescope under a night of good seeing, each of those is shown to be a double. Another object is called the coat hanger, formerly Brocky's cluster, and that lies about a third of the way from Altair up towards Vega, in a rather dark region of the Milky Way called the Cygnus Rift. It's a very pretty thing, so try and have a look for that. At obviously the beginning of September, you can actually see three planets towards the south and west. So you've got Jupiter setting towards the west, Saturn lying due south, and Mars in the south-southeast. So that's quite nice. On September the 8th, before dawn, Mercury will lie below a thin crescent moon. And on the 17th, in the early evening, Saturn is below a first quarter moon. On September the 18th, in the evening, Mars can be seen to the lower left of a waxing gibbous moon. And finally, on September the 29th, late evening, the moon can be seen amongst the Hyades cluster. And let's just say that it's actually quite a good month to observe Neptune with a small telescope. It comes closest to the Earth, it's called opposition, on the 7th of September. The magnitude is plus 7.9, so Neptune with a disk of just 3.7 arc seconds across is, should be easily spotted in binoculars, lying in the constellation Aquarius, over to the left of Lambda Aquarii, as shown in the charts on the night sky page. And rather nicely, it rises to an elevation of 27 degrees when due south. Given a telescope of 8 inches or greater aperture and a dark, transparent night, it should even be possible to spot its moon, Triton. I usually mention something on the moon to look for, and around September the 18th, just after first quarter, is a good time to observe a rather nice little mountain called Mons Piton, which is an isolated lunar mountain located in the eastern part of Mare Imbrium. It's southeast, 
of the crater Placo and west of the crater Cassini. The diameter is 25 kilometers and it has a height of 2.3 kilometers. And the height was determined by the length of the shadow it casts when the sun is at a low angle above the horizon. Cassini is a 57 kilometer diameter crater that's been flooded with lava. The floor has been impacted by many times and holds within its borders two significant craters, Cassini A, the larger, and Cassini B. Again, looking north of Cassini, you should see a rift through the Alpine mountains, Montes Alpes. About 166 kilometers long, it has a thin rill along its center. It's called the Alpine Valley. I've never been able to see that fine rill, but I have been able to image it as seen in the lunar section image called the eight-day-old moon, which I took in March earlier this year. Well, longer nights, I do hope you enjoy having a look at the heavens. Thanks for that, Ian. Uh, and for our Southern Hemisphere listeners, here's Gabby Perez with the night sky where you are. Kia ora, everyone. Gabriella here from Wellington, New Zealand, looking up at our September night sky. Uh, we're finally seeing the end of the cold night as we move into the spring. Uh, September is the time for spring, and we can see it in our gardens as well as in our skies. Throughout the month, you'll notice that our days are slowly becoming longer, and the nights will be getting shorter. And around the 22nd of September is, of course, the spring equinox, meaning that we'll have equal amounts of day and night. And the days will continue to get longer as we move forwards in time. Um, for the same reasons, we'll also see changes in the elevation of the sun, as it will appear a little bit higher in our northern skies and continue to move higher throughout the month. Um, so you can see that shadow becoming shorter as the sun gets higher. In terms of the moon, new moon will fall on the 9th, so the beginning of the month will probably have the darkest sky, which will be perfect for viewing all the deep sky objects. Um, the moon will be full on the 25th of September. So we still have quite a few planets in the sky, especially found across the ecliptic. Uh, we have four naked eye planets in our sky. The brightest of these will be Venus, our evening star. Um, it'll be on the western horizon shortly after sunset. Above Venus, you'll find Jupiter up ahead. East of the zenith, we will have Mars. And all three of these will be visible just after sunset as these planets um, appear very brightly in our sky outshining a lot of the uh, stars. Now Mars has been especially bright and earlier this year came to the closest it's been to Earth in uh, 15 years at the end of July and it's still looking quite bright but it is moving away from us. It's the same brightness of Jupiter and it will continue moving away appearing smaller in our skies. It's looking a little bit better through a telescope as the dust storm that was clouding our view of Mars has um, finally dispersed. So as the night gets darker, we will see Saturn appearing in the north and the moon will be weaving through all these planets throughout the month. Between Saturn and Jupiter, you'll find uh, what we like to call our winter constellation, which is Scorpius and its bright orange star Antares, the rival of Mars. So this giant red star marks the heart of the scorpion, but we don't have scorpions here in New Zealand, so early Māori um, see it as a fishhook, te mata Māori. And Antares is the bloody bait on the hook. Now, Māori constellations, unlike European ones, change 
as the night changes or as the year changes, they will appear at different angles in different locations. So there'll be different objects. For example, in the morning, Scorpius or the fishhook of Maori will appear, of Maui, apologies, will appear by the horizon, hook side up. Then this shape becomes the western pau or pillar holding up the sky. It's hooked over as it bears all the heavy sky on its back, all alone in the west. Out in the east are actually three pillars. Um, so we can see the changes of the constellations even throughout our September night skies. We also have a lot of brilliant stars in our skies. Arcturus, also um, Alpha Bootes, is the brightest star in the constellation of the Bootes, and the fourth brightest star in the night sky. It's actually, interestingly enough, the brightest in um, the northern celestial hemisphere. It will appear northwest in the sky, um, along with Canopus, the second brightest star in the sky, which will appear on the south. So both of these stars will appear to twinkle, because they both can be fine quite close to the horizon. Canopus can look a little bit like a traffic light as it flashes in different colors, and Arcturus will flash red and green. This happens when the stars are so close to the horizon that the light disperses as the light has to travel through the thicker atmosphere before it reaches our eyes. Canopus is in the constellation of Carina, which is circumpolar to us here in New Zealand, meaning we can see it at any time of the year and night. It was once part of the bigger constellation, the Argo Navies, that has now been split into three parts. So this giant boat, once the largest constellation, um, is now formed of Carina, the keel of the ship, Vela, the sails, and Puppus, which is essentially the poop deck. Carina can be found by the Southern Cross. You can use the Southern Cross and Canopus, and between the two lies the constellation. Now, through a pair of binoculars, you can spot a much fainter star within this constellation, Eta Carina. So the star was once very bright in our night sky, in fact, almost as bright as Canopus. It went through an event known as an imposter supernova. So supernova happens at the end of a star's life when it collapses in on itself in a massive explosion, bursting out bits of gas and dust. So Adacrina went through a similar event, but it hasn't come to the end of its life. It's still quite hardy. So astronomers are keeping their eyes on the stars at Mike full supernova, which would, of course, be an incredible thing to witness, or maybe go through another event and you can withstand another imposter supernova. It is now enclosed in the homunculus nebula, and astronomers believe that actually within um, Eta Carina is actually a double star system. Of course, the Southern Cross is very easily spotted in the south, and we like to use our pointer stars, Alpha and Beta Centauri, the brightest stars in the constellation of Centaurus, currently pointing down to the Crux constellation. Also in the south, we have a stunning view of our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, stretching from north to south, and the bulge appearing between Scorpius and Sagittarius, that zone, Sagittarius A, marking the heart of our Milky Way galaxy. Also, if you look in the southern skies, you'll see, especially in the beginning of the month, on the moonless times, you'll see uh, the little patches or blobs. These are, of course, the Magellanic clouds, and we can find them by a much lesser known tiny constellation called Mensa, named after Table Mountain on either sides of that. It's not particularly bright, so you might need to look very carefully or go out somewhere where there is dark skies. And these two are small irregular dwarf galaxies that are circling around our Milky Way. So interestingly enough, on a moonless evening sky, you might see the zodiacal lights, which is visible in the west, 
It's a faint, broad column of light surrounding Venus and Jupiter, and it extends upwards. Um, it's just the sunlight reflecting off meteoric dust in the plane of our solar system. Um, so this dust may have come from a comet a very long time ago, and it is incredible. So that's certainly a sight to see. And that's it from me for the month of September here in Wellington, New Zealand. I wish you all clear skies, and if you're in the Southern Hemisphere, a fantastic spring. Thanks for that, Gabby. And now on to the feedback. Yeah, we've had quite a lot of feedback this month. Um, so firstly, we've had a postcard from France. And it's a very nice looking postcard. We've got some olives in there, some wine, a baguette. Um, I'm not going to try and say the French that's written on the front of the postcard. Nope, I've not spoken French in a while. Nope, I'm not going to do that. But we have had a postcard from uh, Jacques de Marseille, um, who has said, uh, although not an astronomer, I tried to study economics at university, the Jobcast is my favourite podcast. Last night I thoroughly enjoyed your August edition while tucked up in in bed in my camper van. The sound of air blowing through the roof rack, my only distraction. Uh, Thanks, that's that's really nice to hear. That's that's also a really nice image and I'm quite jealous of that life. (laughs) Um, Is it a roof rack? (laughs) <laughs> just come and rattle it for me hairdryer and roof rack what more yeah. do you need sorry go on uh, if you have time please could you have a bits and pieces or odds and ends I'm guessing uh, chat about the shape of the universe or a roundup of the satellites due to be launched and what we aim to discover um, so we did do um, uh, we did cover some uh, stuff along those lines in the January episode uh, looking forward to what uh, was due to be launched in 2018. As well as that could be due an update because some things have gone up, some things have probably been delayed um, inevitably. I mean, um, Tess has gone up and is actually observing now. I don't yes. know if we've done this, but it's really exciting. It's finished its first run two weeks ago as of recording this. Um, there you go, there's some satellite news. Yeah. We might do a more full update, but I'm just excited about that. And uh, I'm sure we can cover uh, the, the shape of the universe in an uh, upcoming episode as well. well. We'll make a note of that. And uh, moving on to some other feedback, um, we've had an email from Stephen Cookson, and uh, so I think I'm gonna gonna read some some parts of this out, and uh, we're, it's quite a long email, so we'll we'll respond to bits of it in turn. Um, so hello guys, I love the Jodcast and recommend it to my friends of an astronomical bent. Uh, thank you. I do try to listen to it awake, I really do, uh, but sometimes it meanders so far from astronomical topics that it becomes quite impossible. So I think th- this is this is touching on the fact that we have recently started talking a little bit more about astronomy and astronomy in context. Uh, we don't particularly, I I don't particularly feel the need to justify this beyond the fact that this is a podcast produced by astronomers. Astronomers happen to be people. People live in the world. Of course, we're going to comment on on world affairs. We we are not. Going, we, we, we are not a podcast that points to the sky and goes, look, a star is there, and then the theme tune plays. We, that, that, that is my take. Um, the, the thing is, with science, um, you, you cannot separate science and astronomy from the people that are doing science and astronomy. Uh, yeah, we don't yeah. live in a box. As you say, we're part of the world we're living in, and, and that world affects us and the way we do astronomy, and it affects our professional and our private lives. And... As astronomers, a lot of the time, our professional and our private lives aren't necessarily all that separate. Um, and so, as Josh says, we unapologetically comment on how the world affects us, um, and we'll continue to do so. Mm. 
There are many, many podcasts out there if you want a podcast which is just, oh, look, a star, and then end. You're catered for, but this is not that podcast. Yeah, you're, you're also free just to um, I guess listen to the Night Sky segments. Um, we, we do have that on our website. Uh, they're all separated out. Um, we do get a bit chatty in the odds and ends segment, but I'd like to think that that discussion is just as interesting as finding out the pure, uh, the pure facts about what's going to be in the Night Sky. Yeah. And uh, moving on to the next paragraph of the email, um, what about the stuff you guys are doing at Dodrell Bank? Uh, did you catch the transient AT 2018 cow? Um, what did you think? So, to respond to that, I think... Um, we did. It was observed with E. Merlin. Um, so, just to put that transient, just to define that transient, it was a, a transient signal that came from uh, a supernova, um, and that supernova was uh, brighter than usual for a supernova, given its distance. I don't know what its distance was. This wasn't my observation. It was done by Rob Bezik and the E. Merlin team. Um, but yes, we did catch it. Um, we haven't commented on it, but maybe we could get somebody to talk about that. Um, that's absolutely fine. It's uh, if if you are interested in 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 it, particularly there's uh, the astronomer's telegram is where it was reported. So that's ATL number one one eight one nine. So that kind of uh, gives the basic uh, summary of the observations that were made with email in. And uh, I'll also put in here as well that I was in Australia at the time and I was observing with ACA. Um, and uh, I had to actually halt the observations that uh, myself and my supervisor were doing at the time so that we could observe this transient uh, for, for someone else that was studying it uh, from ACA. So, you know, it, it was studied all over the world and that there's plenty of reportings on the Astronomer's Telegram about it. In fact, I think it's, it's one of the most telegrammed uh, objects that there's been. There was a kind of a massive explosion of stuff um, that was happening. So I think that there's been plenty of media coverage about it. And yes, we, we did play a small part at Jodrell. Uh, with email in. But. And by the way, anybody can sign up to the Astronomer's Telegram. It's completely free um, and you can just get information. It's usually you get a paragraph if an astronomer and an observatory discovers some kind of transient. Though um, sometimes you get um, pieces of absolute gold. Um, <laughs> such <laughs> as the, uh, I can't remember if we discussed Bars? it. On, yeah, yeah. Well, I can't remember. I if think we, we did mention it, it yeah. But there was, there was a, an Astronomer's Telegram that went out from a couple of cosmologists in, I think it was America. Who were like, we found this new transient, and like, sort of, the brightest, it's the brightest transient we've ever seen. <laughs> and then t- a day later, there was just like a follow up being, we've identified this as the planet Mars. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, you can sign, you can sign up just for roller coasters like that. Which, yeah, <laughs> you know, that's another, it comes back to, we're just people and we make yeah. mistakes. Yeah. Like, it's, it's people who are looking for cosmological transients kind of don't really consider the local universe all that much. No, it's, it's, it's all foreground, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot of astronomers and, and cosmologists, we kind of just sit in front of a computer all day and we analyse data and a lot of people don't actually get out there and, you know, observe the planet or whatever themselves if it's not if it's not their area of expertise. So uh, it's an honest mistake. It's quite a funny one. Mm. But, uh, yes, the astronomer's telegram for little nuggets like that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, uh, another aspect of the email, um, uh, Stephen asks, can I build a radio telescope from my old sky dish? Um, about uh, nine, or can, what about ten, nine or ten dishes? Can I build a 15 metre array in my garden? I think you need a garden that's bigger than 15 metres. But other than that, yes. Yeah, no, I, I, and I, I am aware of uh, amateur astronomers that do do stuff with radio. Yeah, there's um, some, I think it's Radio Jove, where there's a, you can, you're dedicated to radio, amateur radio observations of Jupiter and, and other kind of bright radio objects. 
Um, but yeah, that kind of question, Stephen, is perfect for, for Ask an Astronomer, so we're happy to put that into the Ask an Astronomer pile and have somebody um, answer that for you. Um, we have here um, a group of students, I think it was Stuart Lowe, actually, the, and Nick Rattenbury the, and Eddie Blacker, some of the people that founded the Jodcasts, actually built at Jodrell Bank um, a meteor detector just out of some old TV aerials, which is still running. Yeah, um, so is that, that was, is that what's on the green? No, it's it's on the I think it's on the control room building near the forty two foot telescope. Oh, okay. The the, the the problem with saying they've built this out of some old TV aerials, if you is if you wander around Jodrell Bank, a lot of it looks like old TV aerials. Yeah, it's, that's the it's big, quite impressive how much science you can do with just a wire. The big thing you're the big array of TV yeah. aerials you're referring to, which is just near the Mach two telescope on the green, is um, MUST to the Manchester University Student Telescope, and that's a low mm. frequency telescope that has been built by. Uh, Peter Wilkinson and, and some of his students over the last sort of few years. I'm not sure if it's been commissioned yet, but it's certainly there are more aerials on it every time I go to Jodrell. <laughs> that sounds mildly terrifying. You think quite a lot. <laughs> it's actually quite terrifying. I mean, if you look at it, you wouldn't want to impale yourself on this thing. If you kind of luckily there's no high overhanging buildings or anything. No, you'd no, be quite hard pressed. Strong gust of wind in that direction. You know. <laughs> Uh, and uh, so you mentioned the 42-foot telescope. Uh, yeah. we've, Stephen also included some feedback about that. Um, so I, I, will, I will quote Steve here. Um, it seems like you're slipping in your determination to do away with all things imperial, and we mean the Roman Empire, don't we? One of your telescopes last month was 42 Roman sandals wide. Well, first of all, there is no systematic effort to get rid of all things imperial. We use some truly ridiculous units in astronomy. We use <laughs> cough, erg, cough. Ergs, uh, which is a unit of energy, uh, which is just, a, I think it's a scaled version of a joule, isn't it? I or have literally like no idea. One, one erg is 10 to the minus 7 joules, so it's a unit of energy. We use parallax seconds to, to define distances, whatever they are. Um, we use, in, in pulsar astronomy, we don't use Tesla to describe magnetic fields, we use Gauss. We don't use meters, we use centimeters. Um, so, the reason that the 42-foot telescope is called the 42-foot telescope is in many ways nothing to do with its actual size. It is just its name. Um, and it's it, its official name, if you look through literature uh, where observations have been made with that telescope, it is described as the 42-foot telescope. Occasionally you will see someone describe it as the 13-meter telescope, uh, but it's not 13 meters, it's 12.8. But that sounds worse. And occasionally, actually, you'll see, instead of authors talking about the 76-metre Lovell telescope, we'll talk about the 250-foot Lovell telescope. So I don't really know why it matters, in all honesty. Right. That, that's its name, mm-hmm. and we'll continue to use its name. I mean, should, should, you know, for example, another thing that I can think of is the One Mile Telescope, for example. That, that's its yeah. name. Yeah. We're not just going to change the name of the telescope. The 1.68-kilometre telescope. Yeah. Does that have a baseline of a mile? Is that, is that what that means? Is it? We just probably on the spot know. here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know the tab. No, it's that's at Cambridge, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah. Sorry. I mean, yeah. it's, we've got another telescope there, the seven meter telescope. It's nowhere near seven meters. It's six point four. It doesn't even round up to seven. <laughs> Everybody calls it the seven meter telescope. Um, we use that for um, measuring the. Uh, radio brightness of hydrogen in the galaxy. It's used by the undergraduate students as part of their lab. 
Yeah, basically, astronomers can be really bad at naming things sometimes, or sometimes things are left with quite historical names that maybe don't make just any sense anymore. But please don't judge us for it. It's it's, it's fine. People. Yeah. Again, like I, like I I feel like the reason we kind of read this email out um, and that we had some debate about whether or not we would is to just basically say we're people. This is a this is a podcast produced and made by people, hopefully for people. Um, but we are unapologetic about that and we'll make no effort to change um, because we don't feel we should however mm. that said we are completely open to constructive feedback and yes. the podcast itself has been built off feedback from our audience so please if you have feedback do send it in and like if you have ideas for que- and questions there are questions in that email that we have now passed on to Ask an Astronomer and I, I actually really like the idea of discussing building an array in your own back garden like where do I go to look for that or what kind of things do I need to think about That's that could be a really fun segment um, so there is there is good in all emails uh, moving on to um, a slightly friendlier yeah. uh, email that we've had yeah this um, I, I read this email and genuinely I, I think I had to, I think I came to find, to find Emma when it came through and was just like look at this it's great um, so we've had an email from uh, Josephine and Noah um, who just just wanted to reach out real quick and send a note to say hi and thanks. Um, so Josephine is helping out with a STEM summer camp and they're studying astronomy. And one of the kids uh, called Noah um, is a self-proclaimed science nerd uh, and has basically found the job cast through trying to do extra research. So Noah is year eight, so UK, that's... I think 12, 13. Uh, and I, it's fantastic. Hello, Noah, if you're listening. Um, thank you very much for listening and sending us in an email. Um, it's really nice to hear um, that people from all, all ages are listening and enjoying and hopefully therefore understanding as well. Um, we try and try and make this a podcast that anyone can just listen to. Um, so, yeah, Noah, Noah wants to start stargazing. Um, we gave some good info to get him started. Uh, he was super excite, uh, excited when uh, Josephine suggested we send a personal thanks. Um, so, yes, again, thanks. Um, yeah, uh, that I, yeah, I will end. The, the, the email goes on, but we won't read it all out. Yeah. Um, but yes, thank you, Josephine and Noah. Yes, hi, Noah. Thank you. Great to hear from you. Uh, Teresa on Facebook has said you're always discussing the most profound and relevant issues in astronomy, like blueberries. Yep. We certainly are. Yep. So that was that was our jam-packed August episode. <laughs> yep. I was possibly my favourite paper that I've still ever read. Yeah. I, I will not take credit for that pun, by the way. Jake uh, put it in the in the in the show notes. So. <laughs> but yeah, that was that was probably one. So I I, uh, I did some editing on that episode, but I wasn't. Uh, I was listening back to it and think this this is this is amazing. This is great. It was really weird, but it was great. So thanks for that, Josh. <laughs> sure. Um. Uh, we've also had some feedback um, on our June-July extra episode from Jonathan Shin, uh, who says, While I enjoy all your Jodcasts, there was something about this episode and the compelling and contrasting presentation style of Ben and Dr. Anna that made me listen to this several times with a welcome drink of astrophysics after the Jodcast drought. So, um, yeah, positive feedback your way, Ben. So, yeah, uh, from Twitter, we've had nothing of significance, but I have um, a a fun Twitter story that I just wanted to quickly share, which is um, that hashtag exoplanet, um, which is quite often used by 
exoplanet scientists like myself or, um, has basically been hijacked by um, a K-pop group. Um, <laughs> the, Happens to us all eventually. Yeah, eventually. Like, we all, we all become <laughs> superseded by K-pop. Um, yeah, there's, there's a um, K-pop band called EXO who have for some reason bought the hashtag exoplanet so now whenever you use it you get their little logo and the entire thread is now 16 year old Korean girls can I ask a really naive question yeah what's K-pop oh oh, Korean pop oh Um, it's like South Korean pop music fair enough Uh, which which means that uh, I I have no context for any of the tweets that are on this thread anymore (laughs) 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 It's just, I yeah, I honestly have no idea what's going on in it. It's, <laughs> anyway, yeah, that that was that was my Twitter feedback, not from the job jazz, but just there's a story for Stop you. Stop using our hashtag. <laughs> <Yeah>. Get off. <laughs> it's fine. We've moved to exoplanets. <laughs> and uh, if you do want to get in touch with us, and uh, not via the exoplanet hashtag because that's that's been lost to astronomy now, uh, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. Uh, Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us some posts. The address is on the website. Thanks to the real Josh Hayes for the interview. The editors were Alex Clark, Jake Starberg Morgan and Tom Scrag. The producer was Jake Starberg Morgan. Until next time, Jod on! on!